Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. All right. Hello, everybody. We are back for another episode of Positively Dog Powered. And again, with another great guest, I'm so lucky to have so many awesome people that are willing to come on and share their knowledge. And today we're joined by Deanna Clark. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So today we're going to dive into your area of expertise, which is kind of taking our performance with our dogs to the next level, making sure that as we're increasing training and building better athletes, we're also preventing injuries because that's something that can come along with our sport for sure. Before we kind of get into the bulk of this, do you mind giving our listeners a little introduction to yourself and kind of how you got started in the dog world? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I was raised on a small dairy farm in central Wisconsin. I attribute my uh, sled dog interest to my aunt and uncle who lived in Alaska, and they would come visit and just regale me with stories of the Iditarod. So my dad and I built a dog sled, of course, and I taught our farm dogs how to pull a sled successfully down to the woods, never got them to pull it back from the woods. <laughs> but that was definitely the start of it. And then through vet school, like undergrad and vet school, I had a pack of four rescued Siberian Huskies. So they got to do all sorts of things, learned lots of lessons with them, made a lot of mistakes training them, uh, but we had a really good time. And then as time evolved, my career evolved, I became a veterinarian. I realized I didn't have the time to do distance mushing like I had originally wanted to. And so that's how sprint mushing really called to me. Um, And then, yep. (laughs) And then about six years ago, I got my first uh, Grayster puppies uh, from some, a local musher and one from Canada. And that really started uh, my competition in the sport in sprint mushing. I love that. So you've got the science behind it. You've got, you know, the personal passion and personal experience in the sport as well. So what kind of activities do you enjoy with your dogs? I know you're very big in the dog powered sports world. Do you enjoy hiking and swimming and those kinds of activities with them as well in off season? Yes. Uh, I, anything that involves dogs and outside, I love to do. I love to backpack. I've been doing a couple of the uh, obstacle runs with the dogs. I think that's so much fun to see what they'll do for you and how they, how the, each of them, I did one recently. So we did a 5k with each dog. So I did 20k. It was neat to see how each of them would approach the obstacle and how they would dominate it um, and not have any fear over it. It was so cool. Yeah. I, I always love, you know, getting out into nature and doing other things outside of dog powered sports with the dogs. Cause I feel like you learn so much about your relationship with that dog. <laughs> you know, you learn about what their strengths are and maybe their weaknesses <laughs> where we need to kind of dive into training a little bit more. So I always think that's interesting to kind of get that one-on-one time with each dog and kind of figure yeah. out how they work and how you guys can become a better team. Yes, definitely. So you are currently practicing small animal veterinary medicine, right? Yes. Yep. So what happened was I graduated vet school with an intention to do just large animal. I completely missed my human animal bond and so joined a mixed animal practice a couple years later. And then vet school, we learn a lot of things, but we don't learn a lot about 
at that point, they weren't teaching rehabilitation therapy. So I decided to go ahead and get certified in physical therapy, which in the dog world is called canine rehabilitation therapy. Uh, humans own the physical therapy term, so we can't use that. Um, and then, so I did that in 2013 and was still missing some really vital points in my cases, some really uh, ways to diagnose patients. And so I was taking my dog to a chiropractor uh, one of the founders of the field, Dr. Julie Kaufman, and decided I really needed to learn how to do that too. So I went to a school in Sturdivant, Wisconsin. It's the only certified chiropractic school in the world uh, for chiropractic for veterinarians. And they take human chiropractors too to learn animals. And there I met my husband, decided to completely change my world and move to Southern Ohio. <laughs> and Wait. goodbye snow. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Quite the quite the shift there for you. Do you feel like yeah. your own personal interests in the sled dog community kind of guided that shift and that transition for you into kind of that more holistic and and bigger picture approach for veterinary care? Oh yeah, I'm a extremely integrative person and so it it doesn't resonate with me just to do medications for stuff. I really like to get to the root you know, the, the source of where these diseases originate from. And as much as we can do naturally to help treat these things and prevent these things is really where our practice is today. Now, I know that along with that passion, you recently became a little more involved in the sled dog community and you joined ISDRA. Talk to us a little bit about your position there and kind of what you're looking to bring to the table. Oh yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. So I'm the chair of the Animal Welfare Committee. Uh, so I just get to be a committee member, so I don't have to do too much. <laughs> just kind of help uh, put forth guidelines. I've learned a lot about IFSS and ISRA this year that I had no idea about. Um, and our guidelines actually for ISRA races for the dogs, we don't have too much even for vaccine guidelines. So we're just trying to put forth just some basic guidelines for animal welfare. Um, and the start of that is going to be re to require vaccines. I think that's great. I think you're, yeah. you sound like the perfect person for that position. So I'm excited yeah. to see what kind of changes come about. Yeah, definitely. So, so with your general dog care, you know, I know that you probably see quite a few canine athletes based on your own personal interests and kind of how you practice and, and care for your clients. And then you've also got this unique background with your own dogs and being involved in sled dog sports. Do you feel like dog care, I'm sure there are some overlaps between our general pet population and then our canine athletes. So talk to us a little bit about the overlaps that you feel exist with dog care between those two kind of worlds. And then what might change as we kind of increase and uh, our uh, expectations of our dogs and our fitness of our dogs as they become, you know, big canine athletes. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I feel like all of our dogs innately are athletes. Like they don't care when they go to fetch that Frisbee, if they're competing for the world team, or if they're just out catching the Frisbee for their mom, like they really don't care. And so from a dog's perspective, all of them deserve to have that same treatment, but the people that are my, my best caregivers are those people that go into competition with their dogs because they're really into, you know, how healthy can I help my canine teammate be? And especially for us that, you know, I can only have four dogs. I've limited myself in my life. That's what I want. 
So I need to see how far I can get these guys to go because they don't want to retire at all <laughs> ever. And I don't want them to. So, so that's where then all this really, these really finite things that you might not do for a dog just because, oh, they're just the family pet. They sit on the couch, but they deserve all these things too. So things like chiropractic can really help prevent injuries and then seeing someone that's certified in physical therapy can help you kind of unlock what is that dog prone to having happen to them? Maybe there's a weakness somewhere that we can build on. That's that extra stuff that my competitive people do that really turns me on as a veterinarian for sure. <laughs> and it helps them take those, not only physical skills that the dog has to the next level, but also helps prevent injuries. Cause we know once an injury happens, a dog is more likely to have another injury. It kind of can exacerbate those weaknesses that our dog has. Are there things that you recommend that people do daily, or is this kind of more of a bigger picture plan on, you know, consistent appointments with these professionals? Um, yeah, I think it's more of a, a consistent daily plan, just really paying a heightened awareness to nutrition, hydration, um, all the things that we're going to discuss later. And then I think probably, you know, chiropractic maybe gets a little underrated, though I think most people really understand how important it is these days. Um, but chiropractic is fascinating because how it works is that all of your nerves are coming through the dorsal root of your spinal cord where your vertebral bodies connect. And if you have a muscle spasm, that's, um, you know, when, when we get really tense and your shoulders are all tight and you get that muscle spasm in your neck, what happens is that muscle spasm is actually cutting off blood supply to those nerves. And that nerve feeds an entire area of your body. So when we have a heart attack, you know, you feel pain in that, that, that arm. So it's the same type of thing. You have a constriction up in your neck that's then affecting that whole arm. And so maybe then when you're running out and you fall in a molehill, you actually get injured. Whereas if you're getting regular chiropractic, those nerves are firing better. And so we can actually prevent that injury from happening. So as we're looking at kind of our daily care to keep our dogs healthy, there's obviously a lot that goes into that nutrition, mm -hmm. hydration, <laughs> supplements, you know, physical exercise, preventative mm -hmm. rehab care. Talk to us a little bit about each of those. So let's start with, um, you know, the existence of the dog, right? Like not all dogs are created equal in terms of their structure and their conformation, and that can impact their ability to do certain athletic things. So talk to us about how important it is to kind of begin with a structurally sound dog. Oh, yes. I was so excited about this question. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time mulling over how I would uh, answer this. So I think all of us know, you know, that that perfect structured dog. Maybe we've been lucky enough to have someone in our life like that. I think Togo is my famous example of that. You know, everyone knows Togo led the serum run, started running as a young puppy, ran just crazy long distances, ran late into his life, you know, enjoyed a nice, long, healthy career. And I think those dogs, you can really get away with anything with. And um, I was blessed to have some of those dogs early in my career but then I was blessed with a dog that isn't structurally perfect, like myself. <laughs> um, and so what happens with dogs like that, my dog Jimmy right now is a great example. He podiumed every race he ran. So clearly, despite his not perfect structure, he's a very uh, amazing dog. 
but his angulation's a little bit off in his front end. So instead of towing out, you wanna have a nice that easty-westy stance. When you tow out, when you run, your legs actually go straight. If you stand straight, your legs actually tow in at a run, so it puts different forces on your elbows. So Jimmy's very subtle with that, but when he runs at speed, he gets a little sore in his biceps. So if I were to ignore that, what happens is over time, structurally, the, the muscles on the front of his arm are going to get overbuilt. So those, those um, extensors are going to get more toned to them and the flexors like the triceps start to get weak. And I have pictures of him from last year where you can kind of see how the triceps aren't filling in very well. And I found a program that was created by one of my rehabilitation professors. It's called uh, Optimum, Pet, Optimum Pet Vitality Core and More. It's a six-week program that you put your dog through. And one of the key exercises for balancing out Jimmy's imbalance is backwards walking. And so backwards walking is actually going to build up his triceps to kind of get that muscle built up so it can take off some of the stress on the biceps. And it's amazing. Like we're, I don't know, six weeks about into this program. We're only doing it twice a week. So that's all I can manage my schedule. He looks like a different dog. So I really wanna make sure we include this link at the end of our program too. Uh, you can use my name, Deanna, as uh, there's like a discount code associated with it. You get 10% off the, the uh, program. but. It's amazing what you can do with these dogs that aren't quite right, or like a hip dysplastic dog. There's all these exercises that we can do to strengthen those hips. And then they never show disease from that problem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as you were explaining that and you started off with yourself, who's not structurally correct. Yeah. I've had knee surgery already from not being structurally correct. And I always laugh because when my husband and I talk about things like this, I'm like, oh yeah, no. You know, I wouldn't clear my health test, you know, what we're talking about, like right. breeding dogs. And it's right. funny because there's so much that I have done with professionals, right? To make sure that I didn't have to have surgery. And then I did. And then after surgery to get me back in shape and all yes. that same stuff can be done for our dogs. And it's that preventative care is great for any dog, but it's especially important for our dogs that yep. might already be prone to having one of these areas of weakness and making yep. sure that it doesn't become exacerbated or eventually lead to injury. Yep, exactly. And I think there's a room for these dogs to do that because not all of us are going to be elite in these, you know, in this performance. And I'm at a point right now where I've got two really healthy young dogs I can compete with, but as they're aging out, we're still going to do it. We're just going to do it more at the recreational level and not expect a podium every time. <laughs> so yep. absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I'm in that boat. I've got two seniors in my house and one yeah. youngster and they still want to do the thing. Right. And yes. so it's, it's all about ways to make sure that as caregivers, we're setting them up for success to be able to yep. continue to, to live their best life in a yes. safe manner, right? Yes, for sure. Awesome. So one of the other kind of uh, pinnacles of keeping our dogs healthy is going to be uh, nutrition, right? And there's nutrition has kind of been a hot topic in the dog world recently. There's been a lot of information, a lot of misinformation. Um, and I find that our sled dogs can be a little bit different. We, with our working dogs, you know, we can have higher caloric uh, necessities for them. It 
might change from off season to working season. So talk to us a little bit about kind of daily routines for nutrition and kind of what you find is essential for our canine athletes. Yes, for sure. Um, so I'm in a, I'm enrolled in a hundred hour nutrition class right now. So just to oh, give I you love like, it. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> and I'm more confused and overwhelmed than ever. <laughs> what of course, you know, yeah. there's nothing like learning more about something to make you realize no. how little, you know, right. Like, <laughs> I always get into that conundrum. I had no idea how, uh, uh, imbalanced most of our canine diets are. It's insane to me. And then um, I've always been a big home cooker recommender. You know, it's like, oh, it'll be close enough. No, it's not. I just did a diet formulation for someone the other day. It's horrifically imbalanced. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, there's getting to be better and better recipes out there, but there's, it's actually the internet abounds with recipes that are terrible. And I, I really wanted to have a good recommendation to give you, but I don't have one. yet. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as uh, kibble versus raw, you know, I, I do in an ideal world would love to feed all of our dogs a raw based organic diet if we could afford it. Um, that's not very affordable for most of us. Uh, especially with our working dogs and their high calorie needs. Um, but I think it's important to know that you don't have to be 100%. You, you can food combine raw and kibble. It's okay. There's no reason why you can't do that. Um, so that's what I personally do. Um, there is a food and getting ready for the ISDRA convention. When I did the performance talk, I got to meet Rob Downey. He's the founder of Animat. I learned what a great food Animat is. So I, I feel really good recommending their food. He puts a lot of thought into the ingredients that go in it. It's formulated for sled dogs. It's kind of a win-win for us. Um, it is expensive, but as he says, you know, why would we think we could feed a, you know, 80 pound Newfoundland for $40 a month? We can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, so they have really good foods. What's interesting in our sport too, is that everyone kind of puts sled dogs in the same boat, but actually you don't increase anything really calorically wise until you're doing, you get a moderate increase in calories if you're bike during for two to 10 miles. It's greater than 10 miles where you really start to see calorie increases. And when they're comparing Iditarod dogs, sled dog nutrition to sprint dog nutrition, it's totally different. So the Iditarod dogs are getting into an area where they're burning really high fat, low fiber, and sort of more minimum to moderate carbs. Those are pretty high protein diets. Our sprint dogs still are going to do really well with sort of the, you want at least 24% protein in your kibble-based diet. Um, but they're going to do fine with that 24% and they don't need too much of an increase in that. So, so as somebody might be looking, maybe they're listening and thinking, oh, you know, I, I can't afford raw. Maybe I stick with kibble. Are there any red flags that you would kind of identify in terms of looking at their food and being able to determine if it was substantial or not? Um, I think definitely looking at the ingredient list. So it's most of these kibble companies are, are going to try to um, get protein from non-meat sources. Um, so make sure that meat is a big part of it. But that's where reading dog food labels is really challenging because they, um, 
they list per the ingredient weight versus what is actually making up most of the uh, food. So, <laughs> so it's such a challenge. So I think just stick with animate. <laughs> Something that we know and trust. <laughs> I really no. like it's. It's so crazy how the nuances change the quality of the food. I'm yeah. still trying to filter through all that stuff. It's a lot. It's a lot, you know, and in some of the foods that might seem like a better deal financially, ultimately it's just more fillers and you have to feed a lot more of it in order to get that same amount. So it ends up, you know, not even really being cheaper in the end. So, you know, looking at how much they need of that food also impacts that price point for you. Right. And I guess to your point, you know, in an ideal world, we have a nice small you know, not firm stool, but a well-formed smaller stool would indicate good digestibility of your diet. And then one of the recommendations is to change amongst those high quality diets every like three to four months. And if you have dogs that don't have digestive problems and have good biomes, that's kind of a nice thing to do because not everyone's going to get it right. And as humans, we get really addicted to a specific type of food. So we just have to be aware like, okay, this isn't working for my dog. Let's try something new. So I do that. And I tend to stick with the major brands. Um, these little labels can be amazing, but they can also be really imbalanced. And there's no way to know unless you do um, testing after the food's been made in the dog food bag, which is a lot of money. And so most of those companies don't do that. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Very good point about that. I know when we're talking about small batch, generally, oftentimes that ends up um, translating to our raw diets or even our Mm -hmm. raw food that can be supplemented in. And I know a lot of people, if they aren't used to feeding raw, it can be a little intimidating and even scary Mm -hmm. for them to get started. What would be your recommendation and kind of if they started to supplement with it, what kind of raw should they be looking for? How often should they be supplementing just to kind of get their toes wet and kind of see how that nutrition is working for their dog? So I think it is amazing when you just start supplementing meat, like good old ground round burger, how the muscle changes on your dogs. So you can even just start with something as simple as that. Make sure when you buy it that you freeze it for at least two weeks because that's what's going to get rid of most of the pathogens that's in the food. Um, I've poisoned my dogs innumerable times with chicken just straight <laughs> straight start. I promise not to do that to them anymore. So um, so now we freeze it for two weeks at a minimum. Um, but you can do, I think burgers a little bit easier. I think most dogs tolerate it really well. Um, a good 80, 20 is usually tolerated pretty well. If you're doing 70% protein, 30% fat dogs have to get used to fat. And so if we're starting to get in at 30% fat, uh, ground round, that's when you maybe are going to start to get some, uh, diarrhea from that. So they have to work up to that. Um, but I'll just put it over the kibble, um, and see how they do with it. Maybe start, you know, if we're talking about a 50 pound dog, like a tablespoon, um, Chicken, I think, is amazing because then we have bone in, but dogs have to be used to chewing bones to be safe with bones. So I always caution people, if you're first, you know, starting with bones with your dogs, make sure if they've never been exposed to them, that that 
they don't just try to inhale it because they can get things lodged in their trachea. And those are the horror stories that you hear. <laughs> so if you start with something like a chicken wing or a half a chicken wing, you can start to get an idea of how well they're going to actually use that food if they're gonna chew it. A dog can swallow a chicken wing just fine, no problems, it will digest. As long as the bone's not cooked, uh, the bone is really digestible. When you cook chicken bones, that's when we run into issues with uh, splinting and um, having issues with uh, vomiting and stuff like that. Excellent. So starting small, seeing how they're doing with it, and then slowly mm -hmm. kind of increasing the amount that you would give them based on their tolerance. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. So another component that I know we have on the agenda today is going to be hydration. Um, yeah. This is something that I, within the last, I'd say three years, have been diving into more. And personally, I've oh. seen a huge shift in um, my dog's ability to handle heat, their, you know, performance when we're out running. So talk to us a little bit about hydration in dogs and particularly kind of in association with our training runs that we're doing. Yes. So hydration is key to everything. So because dogs uh, cool themselves with evaporative cooling, you can imagine if they're not hydrated, they're going to overheat a lot easier. Um, we have studies for performance for hydration that shows with even a one to 2% uh, like dehydration factor will affect performance. If you're dehydrated by 5%, it'll affect your performance by 30%, which is crazy. Yeah. Yes. And you cannot detect dehydration until it's eight to 10% in a dog or an animal. So these are, these are subclinically dehydrated dogs. Uh, dogs that are fed kibble are definitely gonna be subclinically dehydrated because they're fed a moisture inappropriate diet uh, even though dogs are great at drinking water, uh, water is a really important nutrient and we can add it back to kibble. So I always recommend that you're adding water back to kibble when you're feeding. Um, so if you feed a cup of kibble, add a cup of water, but that's still not going to be the same as feeding raw. If dogs are fed raw, they, they don't tend to have this problem. Um, so most of our kibble fed dogs are walking around a little bit subclinically dehydrated. So when we're getting ready for getting them ready for workouts and races, we want to make sure that we're doing baited water meals. Um, I'm always going to do baited water at least two hours before my race. Um, and when I'm going into a race weekend, I'll start hydrating actually the day or two days before the race. Um, and we want to aim for that kind of that nice light yellow colored urine. It's going to be different for everybody. Uh, my favorite baited water is to do a half a sardine, like the little canned sardines in like two cups of water for my 70 pound dogs is about what they need. It's crazy. Huskies need way less, um, water. Um, when I had Huskies, they would only need about a cup and they were great, but the hounds need so much more to get them hydrated. And then with travel too, they're not typically going to be drinking. So they're going to get really dehydrated with travel too. Um, so if you know you're going to be on the road traveling, do you start that prehydration even a day sooner to account for that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about water, water, water. If I can, I'll switch them over to raw food entirely a couple days before I'm leaving. Because when we talk about races, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll talk about uh, fasting dogs as well. So the food part really gets uh, 
changed up when we're doing races. <laughs> it's a little complicated. Now, yeah. for our listeners who might not know, why does that get so complicated? Why do we have to be so concerned about food intake in association with exercise for the dogs? Oh, yeah. So this is a, there's a couple of different uh, things with food and performance. So um, with with just performance, if we're talking about that, we know that fasting will increase your performance. There's a couple of different theories as to why that is. So if your gut is empty of all the food, you're not going to have all that metabolic heat. Um, you're also not going to have the weight and you're not going to have to poop. So you're just going to be faster. And then there's just some really neat fasting studies out there about how it just improves your metabolic health in general. Um, but because we're traveling and having to stay hydrated, you have you can't exactly just fast your dog 24 hours before a race. They have to be getting water in. My dogs won't drink water unless it's baited with something. So we're not exactly fasting them, but we are doing some some really calorie restriction stuff and then doing the, the baited water meals. And then the other thing with food is you have to be so careful when you're feeding. I think again, it a lot of this is the kibble foods. So if you've just worked out and you eat a huge pile of kibble, um, you're really prone to bloating. Um, so we have a really just a, a, a very carbohydrate dense food that's dry sitting in your stomach. Your stomach's a little deprived of, of blood flow because you just used it all to run a really fast race. And so now I'm going to be really prone to bloat. And then if I go try to drink a ton of water to make up for all that kibble, the kibble expands and voila, there you have a big problem. So it's really important not to feed your dogs until they are cooled down. But when we're talking about performance, you also have to provide your body with a post-workout um, recovery meal. So your, your muscles are going to need a couple of different things that we'll talk about. Uh, but the meal portion of it, you definitely want to provide those muscles with protein and carbohydrates, usually within about a half an hour of exercise. Um, so once our dogs are, are cooled off from running, I will give them a, a small meal. And if you're out training, um, an egg can be a really nice, perfect recovery meal for those dogs if you're out on the road. Very nice. So let's talk about those race weekends. We've kind of teased at it a little <laughs> bit here. Um, so we talked a little bit about prehydration and how if we're on the road traveling for an event, we might kind of bump that one day even further. But let's now kind of talk about nutrition on the road and nutrition for races, as well as that, you know, post-exercise, uh, you know, recovery meal that we were just talking about. Awesome. So the one of the most important things that you can do to improve your performance is maltodextrin. Uh, Animet, uh, Rob Downey, they created a really awesome recovery chew. So there you have the exact amount of maltodextrin that you need, which makes it really easy. Um, if you don't want to do that, you can kind of try to look up how much you need per, you know, kilogram of dog or just get the animate recovery chew. <laughs> They're a lot easier. Um, those you want to make sure you get it. And we only use maltodextrin on race weekends. If you use it all the time, your body gets used to it and then uh, you don't see any benefits in it. The maltodextrin is restoring the the glucose so that you're ready for that next sprint race the next day. And I do see improvement in that um, 
I think you should be using those recovery twos if you do agility too. Um, so anything where you're doing back-to-back -back matches and back-to-back -back really hard workouts or back-to-back -back races, you should be doing it. I don't use it much while I'm training unless I am planning, you know, I'm, I'm leading up to a race and maybe trying to get some miles on the dogs, trying to get some really back-to-back -back hard races in, then I will uh, use it. But otherwise, I don't use it in training at all. So you do your maltodextrin, and then once the dogs are cooled off, then you can do sort of that recovery meal. Ideally, you're doing those separate from each other because the maltodextrin will be competitively unabsorbed if it's getting fed with fat. Um, raw food is digested more rapidly than kibble. So on race weekends, between races, so if we race Saturday and then Sunday, Saturday, I'm just going to be doing raw food. So I'll give them their maltodextrin within a half an hour, within probably about 40 minutes, they're getting their recovery meal. And then that night, they maybe get a little baited water again. Um, and the next morning, otherwise they don't eat anything until after the race. And does that post-race weekend kind of... Uh come back into routine, does that look different or do you just immediately jump back into their normal feeding schedules? Oh, yep. Then I just go right back to normal. Yep. And then because I have some dogs that tend to be a little on the thin side of body condition score, I'll try to then get those calories back up after the race. <laughs> so maybe a Make couple sure don't lose anymore. Yep. Yep. We don't need them to lose weight. We just need them to maintain it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Um, so supplements, you know, you kind of talked about that recovery chew. Are there any other supplements that you're adding in for your dogs, either on a regular basis or even, you know, associated with hard training or race weekends? Yeah, the there's a lot of different ideas about supplements out there. The ones that dogs for sure absolutely 100% need are fish oils. Um, most of our diets are going to be deficient in fish oils. And then a glucosamine supplement. And with glucosamine supplements, they are not all created equal. So Dasaquin is a really good supplement. Um, they've done all the studies to show their product works. The only other one that passed all the studies was uh, green-lipped muscle. Uh, green-lipped muscle has a little omega-3 in it as well and some different minerals. We don't know exactly how it works, but uh, green-lipped muscle passed, Dasaquin passed, fish oils are good. Um, Vitamin E, you don't need to give unless you are feeding raw food. If you're feeding raw food, that can get rancid. Like, you know, and, and this kind of comes back again to the distance musher. So there was a year where the food got kind of hot. And so a lot of the food got rancid. And then a lot of the dogs got really sick. But the mushers that were supplementing vitamin E, the dogs didn't have any issue because their food was rancid. They had enough vitamin E to deal with it. They were okay. So there's situations like that. And the, in vitamin C, technically dogs shouldn't need it. Um, so you'll see different opinions on it, but it's something that can cause diarrhea. So I don't typically use vitamin C, um, but maybe if you're feeding just kibble and you don't have those good fresh healthy factors in it, maybe it would help your dog. And are these supplements things that you recommend that everybody use? You know, how how would each individual kind of determine what amount and what supplements would be necessary for their dog? Um, the fish oils, I think, are are good broad-based recommendation for everyone. Um, your worst case scenario is they can get diarrhea. 
from it. And then once in a blue moon, if you have a dog that does get worse on fish oil, they probably actually just have a great diet that actually really does have the right amount of omega-3 and six fatty acids in it. Uh, the dose for that, for like pain, inflammation, the hardcore dose is 20 milligrams of EPA per pound. And the EPA you find on the back of the label, the fish oil will be labeled as EPA and DHA. And so you can find the EPA on the back. Um, so that's, you know, a thousand milligrams for a 50 pound dog. That's a lot. So I ease into that um, and kind of see if they can tolerate it. And then uh, Dasequin, that one obviously has a label on it for their weight. I think in general, it's worth it to have a dog on glucosamine. I think our athletes are pushing themselves. And so they're, they're going to be getting little micro injuries to the joint and they're not going to tell you they have an issue until they really have an issue. <laughs> so if you can afford it, I think it's a great supplement to have them on. I'm glad that you mentioned that, right? Because I, <laughs> I used to be a vet tech before I was a dog trainer oh, yeah. and all the time people would come in and they had no idea that their dog even had an issue until yep. it was quite severe because our dogs are often very stoic. Mm -hmm. Our dogs who love what they do, it can be very hard to say you can't do that now, right? Like <laughs> our dogs don't often limit themselves. So I think that for somebody who might be new to observing gait in their dog or new to observing small changes of body language, like ear positioning yeah. and tail positioning, it can be hard to determine when there might be something small brewing, yeah. right? So do you have any tips or kind of recommendations on maybe things that you do routinely with your runs? Like um, you know, checking feet before and after each run or feeling muscles and checking for warmth. Like what are some things that our listeners can kind of start building into their routine so that they can start to notice, Hey, you know, that looks a little different than it used to, or feels a little different than it should. Um, so, so that they can start noticing those small changes. Yeah. I think, um, the easiest thing that you can do that absolutely 100% will never hurt your dog is really watching those subtle, um, how they carry themselves. So even just having your dog sit, they should sit perfectly 100% square. They should be in 100% symmetry on each side of their body. If they're not, there's either something wrong with their knee, their hock or their hip. Um, and in the front limbs, I think it's a little bit harder to see um, but again, they should be very symmetrical. You can have dogs. So for my warm up routine, um, and I, I like to do a little warm up before I definitely before races, um, training runs, I might warm up in my training run, but usually the dogs are just off leash running around to warm up, but you might ask them to do a sit square. So do you see how sit they are a sphinx lie? So that's where the the legs are perfectly underneath them in the front. That can really tell you if there's something they're avoiding. I'll have them jump up on me um, because that stretches their low back. But then again, if they can't hold that stretch very well, there's probably a weakness in that low back that we need to work on and some flexibility issues there. And then I'll have them do a play bow. Um, and that play bow is again, that really nice checking out those shoulders. Where are those elbows at? Is everything really symmetrical? And that will tell you right there what's wrong with your dog. 
Um, and a really, a trained vet can look at that too and really see, oh gosh, yeah, the way that dog's sitting, eh, there's a cruciate there. So some of those lamenesses are really obvious. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, I came from horses too. So like growing up, oh, yeah. I was always yep. extremely uh, in tune to small body language changes, right? Because yes. that can tell you whether or not horses favoring a leg. And so it's always been something that has kind of been ingrained in me. And I, yes. you know, when I'm talking to other people, I realize how they just don't know what to look for, for that yeah. kind of thing. So I'm glad that we talked about that a little bit. Um, yeah. I think that it's important for you to, as well, like the moment you're hearing this conversation, start observing your dog, mm -hmm. right? Because if you yeah. don't know what their baseline is and what's normal for them, you're not yep. going to notice if something is off. So watching yeah. how they walk, watching how they trot, um, yep. looking at how quickly or easily they get up and lay back down, you know, yes. especially in relation to exercise. Are they getting up and down a little bit slower yep. after a big heavy run? Do they yeah. seem a little more stiff, right? Like all of those little changes, we won't know unless we know yep. what that baseline looks like too. So just kind of training yourself as an, an owner to yep. become more observational and watch your dogs on a daily basis for those small yeah, changes. For sure. And I, I really do think inherently whenever dogs are bulking at doing something like, you know, agility, they don't, they don't want to do the weaves. They didn't take that jump. And then, you know, our dogs, I, I think they all want to run, but maybe they're just not pulling as well. They stop short at the corner where we normally turn around. Those are usually all musculoskeletal problems. Um, and Absolutely. it, it takes, it takes a trained, a really, really trained veterinarian to find them. I did not know how to do this before I became chiropractic and rehab certified. <laughs> so go easy on your poor veterinarian if they're not certified in these things. <laughs> yeah. And find, find a community, like find a, a yep. diff, different people in the dog world that you can go to for different kinds of assistance. You yep. know, the other thing too, that comes to mind for me too, since I'm in the behavior world now, right? I One of the big tells, if we get a brand new client that a new behavior or challenge that is challenging or maybe problematic, but it's new and the dog hasn't always displayed it, our brain yep. always goes to pain first. When was the last time this dog was checked out by a vet? Because sometimes what the dog is feeling physically might not show physically, but yeah. we might see a change of behavior or personality start to show. So that's always yeah. a good indicator too. Hey, let's go get our dog checked out. Let's just make sure everything's okay before we start addressing this from a behavior standpoint. Yep. I agree with that. Yep. So as our listeners are, um, kind of looking at their fall race schedule, right? Because I think everyone's kind of got fall training on the brain and, you know, we're yes. getting excited and praying for cooler temperatures <laughs> so that we can get back out with our dogs. Do you have any tips for them about, you know, care at home or changing their routines, anything to kind of help them, um, you know, take, take what they've got to the next level? Um, I think, uh, we kind of train all year round. So this summer we've been doing a lot of, uh, well, the, the core and more program is what we've been doing this summer. So, um, I think my biggest mistakes in the past with fall training is I'm so excited to get out there and I love to go so fast that that first run, you just go, what? <laughs> but we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> 
So, you know, I think easing into things, starting really slow. So we only, you know, start our runs at about an eighth of a mile, a quarter of a mile. They're really short. I always want to leave my dogs wanting more, more, more. It's always so hot anyway that they're already overheating by an eighth of a mile. So um, just, you know, starting really slow. Um, our routine, you know, is I'm not a very good routine person. So we try to get up early enough that I can water them at least, you know, two hours, an hour before we go and then try to get out in those early mornings um, before it gets too hot. Um, and then, you know, as soon as we start to get that cooler weather, I think that's why I like bike drain so much is remembering that the fitness level kind of comes slow. Like if we haven't been doing stuff this summer either, we have to remember that, you know, all of a sudden running a mile is a lot. And so if you're doing it too, it's a lot easier to put it into perspective. Like, oh, just because we were running three miles last year doesn't mean we can do it now. So um, just easing into things, <laughs> let it build naturally, um, start those runs really slow. And then as it gets cooler, the dogs are going to become more fit, more able, the speed will come on naturally. Yeah, I think that's huge. You don't, you don't force the speed, you build mm -hmm. the strength, you build the, mm -hmm. you know, resistance work, and then the speed will follow all of that. Mm -hmm. Yep, for sure. Awesome. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that we covered a lot of really important topics that people will be able to start thinking about their at-home routines and deciding, you know, what they might need to shift and really building those foundations and routines now to help them with their fall racing schedule for sure. Um, I appreciate you coming on. I really do. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. It was so much fun. Thank you. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.